So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground and, and at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is, stiff, is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Romans 2, 1 to 11, page 1129 in your Bibles. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself, because you pass judgment, you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give, no, give to each person according to what he has done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, gen then for the Gentile for God does not show favoritism. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we come to look at God's word. Father, we thank you for uh, revealing to us in your word what you are like, what your character is like, and help us to get a bit of a clearer grip on that this morning, we pray, as we look at these passages of scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in very um, touchy-feely times, I sometimes think. A, a robber breaks into your house, you bash him over the head with a frying pan, 
which would seem to me an entirely reasonable thing to do, but you're more likely to end up in court than the robber. Uh, while it is, in my opinion, wholly appropriate for Ken Clark to attempt to reduce the prison population, which you've been reading about this week in the papers, uh, because prison palpably fails to prevent re-offending uh, in many cases, and it might even ferment certain types of religious extremism and criminality, to move from that position to thinking that all criminals are victims uh, uh, rather than villains seems to me naive. Not, of course, that the good Mr. Clark thinks that, I'm sure. But we do as a society, it seems to me, uh, often care more for the villain than the victim. Let me give you a slightly more trivial uh, ex uh, ex uh, illustration of what I'm, the point I'm trying to make. As some of you know, on some of my days off in the summer, I captain the uh, Oxfordshire over 50s cricket team in the national inter-county competition. Uh, I'm sure you'll be pleased to know we're rather good at the moment. Uh, it'll be a great relief to you to know that we're winning. Um, but if you're still playing cricket seriously at 50, or more than 50, then you've been both a reasonably good player and also devoted much of your time to it. One symptom of that is that it's quite interesting that in my team, I am the only player who is still married to his first wife, the only one. All the others are divorced. Uh, they've now got various new complications, but that's the situation. But inevitably, we are at the end of our careers, and to be judged not good enough for the over-50s team means that there is really nowhere else to go. That is the end of your cricketing road. So as captain and chief selector, judge, it is down to me to deliver the coup de grace on some distinguished amateur cricketing careers. And judgment is neither easy nor is it always well received. The man I drop may well not share my opinion of the unworthiness of his unworthiness to play. And uh, at least on two or three occasions in the last six years, I have been summarily crossed off Christmas card lists uh, because of dropping someone. So in a society in which we think we have a right to certain things, we do not care to be judged. Uh, so of course, as a result of that, we have created a God in our own image. He, or perhaps she, is unconditionally loving. Since we perceive ourselves as essentially good, and human nature as being essentially good, any idea of humanity being fallen and sinful is seriously unfashionable, this God that we have invented is an inclusive God who will accept all, whatever they believe or whatever they have done. Of course, it is much better when we love our neighbor because that is good for society. But if for one reason or another we do not love our neighbor, it is not our fault. It is the fault of our parents or our teachers or our environment or our genes or whatever. And since God is loving, tolerant and good, he will overlook it in the end. So if this, what, 150-year-old um, God, uh, if he were captain of my over-50s team, uh, we would have to play 25 aside because nobody would ever get dropped from the team. Now, as we continue this series, which is really Donald Hayes' series, as I mentioned at the start of the service, a series on the God with whom we deal, we've come to this question, 
of God's judgment, a God who judges, for that is clearly how the Bible reveals him to be. Uh, Donald devised the series, uh, arranged for the sermon on this Sunday, and then fled the country. Uh, actually, that, that's not entirely true, actually. He just has to be away this weekend. But uh, uh, unworthy though I am uh, to fulfill his shoes, I have stepped into them uh, for this sermon. The question of God's judgment is the one that we're dealing with. And I rather hope that my lengthy introduction has effectively made the point that we're in a society in danger of, re of replacing revelation about God, which is what we buy into as evangelical Christians, with reinvention of God with a small g. And ultimately, of course, that leads to belief in no God at all. It was interesting, at a meeting this week I attended uh, in connection with the uh, Oxford University pastorate, the, the pastorate which is a ministry uh, across the city to graduate students. Uh, I was uh, at a meeting which was also attended by my good friend Bruce Gillingham, who's the rector of St. Clement's Church uh, in Oxford. And he pointed out in an introduction to our day's discussion that Christian graduate students in our universities are assailed by three great attractions at present. Uh, these are the three that Bruce identified it. The attraction of hedonism, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Sip the champagne, is how Bruce put it, for there is nothing else. Although strangely, of course, this hedonism may be linked to all kinds of new spirituality. Secondly, he said that graduate students were assailed by what he called not just uh, atheism, but anti-theism. That is an orchestrated attack on belief in any sort of God at all. And that is entirely understandable because the insipid God that our liberal society has produced, that has invented, is not really worth believing in. So you will find, even within the church, sometimes in the extreme uh, sections of the church, even the Church of England, an essentially atheistic spirituality, which is more akin to Buddhism than the religion of the Bible. And thirdly, Bruce pointed out, speaking from an East Oxford context, uh, he drew our attention to the rise and significance of Islam in our society. In such a context as that, then, it is good to remind ourselves this morning from Scripture that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, cannot be so lightly dismissed. Let me remind you for a few moments what, what we read about uh, him just uh, a few moments ago. First of all, as uh, we saw in Exodus 34, he is a holy God who lays down the law. Not once, but twice, God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. And these are laws in the context of the wandering people of that time. They are laws that God's people are expected to adhere to. It is these laws that will distinguish them uh, from the peoples amongst whom they are moving, and in particular when they enter into the Promised Land and are confronted uh, by the pagan peoples of those lands. These laws are what will make the people of God distinct. Second, though, we discover in Exodus 34 that there is a significant touchy-feely aspect to our God. 
What a truly description, uh, what a truly wonderful description of love we are given in these verses, verses 6 and 7a. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You see, Moses in chapter 33 in verse 18 had asked to see God's glory. Show me your glory. And he had seen enough, you see, of man's glory, man's vanity. He had seen that at the bottom of the mountain when he came down with the law the first time and there was the golden calf that they had made. The people had rebelled against God and created a God that they wanted, a God that was, would serve them, would serve their expectations, the golden calf. So Moses is under no illusions about the wickedness of both his own and his people's heart. He did not fall for this lie that humanity is essentially good. After all, in his youthful anger, he had killed the Egyptian. And now he had had weeks and weeks of the people's grumblings. God's glory, Moses discovers, is revealed in his character. He is full of mercy grace, compassion, faithfulness, and forgiveness. Always he is reaching out in tender love for prodigals to return to him. But his glory is also revealed, the Bible tells us, in his justice. See, the Ten Commandments are not just the law that will distinguish the people from the peoples around them, the people of God from the peoples around them. They are also a description of the character of God. God does not steal, God does not lie, God does not covet, God is faithful, and there are no other gods besides him. All other gods are figments of our imagination. So thirdly, we discover in 7b, 34-7b, that he is a God of judgment. Yet he does not leave the godly unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. These are sobering words, are they not? And they come so closely after this vivid description of God as a compassionate God. And of course, there's some debate about what these words actually mean. At one level, it is obviously true that the sins of the parents are visited on the children. How we behave has a profound effect upon our children, upon their children, and their children's children. You've seen that vividly in Pete's testimony this morning, how being brought up in a strong Christian family laid the foundations at the age of six for his own uh, Christian walk. The righteousness of his parents was visited upon their child. So all parents should be humbled at the awesome privilege that is ours to influence future generations. Parenting is holy ground, so we should tread carefully. But there may also be intended in this warning that there is some kind of generational spiritual hold, that this may be more than just, be just human behavior, that there may be a spiritual impact from one generation to another, and that needs to be broken by prayer and by the power of Christ. Uh, Paul reminds us in the New Testament that we are fighting not just against a human enemy, not just against uh, our, 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 our own emotional well-being, but against spiritual forces that can hold people in thrall. But however we read it, it is clear from 
Exodus 34 that sin, uh, rebellion against and rejection of this loving, holy God is very serious indeed. And the society that ignores him, whether it's for hedonism or rejects him for anti-theism or chases after other gods, is a society that is in very real danger. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find no conflict. We find no uh, mythical uh, idea that the God of the New Testament is a loving God and the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful God. We find the same God is revealed in the New Testament as has been revealed throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The God with whom we must deal is both a God of infinite love and a God of holy wrath. Think, for instance, of the words of Jesus as he looked at the hypocritical Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? That is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who reveals, we are told in the gospel, exactly what God is like. When we look to Jesus, we see exactly what God is like. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? And Paul, in our second reading from Romans 2, follows up his teaching about God's anger against the hedonistic sin of chapter 1 in Romans. Romans 1 majors on that. Principally, I suppose, as he was writing to the Roman church, that was the sin that was identified with the Gentile community in Rome. He follows up that attack in Romans 1 with this that we heard read by Audrey just now, scathing attack on the self-righteous, stubborn, unrepentant hearts of the self-righteous, principally, presumably, the religious Jewish community in Rome. So let me remind you how he concludes in verses 6 to 11 of Romans 2. Let me just read this again for you. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every being, every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So what is my conclusion from this reminder of the character of the God with whom we must deal? Well, the conclusion, of course, is that we must do good. We must do good. We would be very foolish to believe in this God, to believe in the revelation of this God, that this is really what God is like, and continue to do bad things. That would be very foolish of us indeed. We must, we must do good. And where does good start? How do we do good when we are sinful people, when we're fallen people? Well, we cannot do better. This, of course, has been a dilemma that has affected those who follow Jesus uh, all through history. How do we do good when we're sinful people? How can we escape judgment when we deserve judgment? Well, we, do, we cannot do better than heed the words of Jesus himself. When asked in John 6, what must we do to do the works God requires? His reply to his disciples uh, at the occasion of the feeding of the 5,000, his reply is not beyond any of us. This is where all of us can be. He says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
all of us can do that. We can start trusting Christ. We can continue to trust Christ. We can step out of this church building today trusting in Christ, putting our trust in Him. Lord, I believe in You. Lord, I believe in You. So as we come to communion this morning, let us come afresh as beggars uh, seeking bread. Let us come as believers seeking more faith. Let us come as sinners saved from hell and judgment by the precious body and blood of Jesus, who in His loving and holy life has shown us exactly what God is like. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who, is, uh, who can be seriously believed in and taken seriously. We thank you that in your grace you, you created humanity in your own image to know you and to enjoy you forever. We recognize afresh this evening that often we lose sight because of the pressure of the spirit of our age. We lose sight of this awesome holiness that has been revealed in your word, which has been made flesh in the Lord Jesus. And as we come to communion this morning, you will remember that this holy, awesome God was taken to a dreadful, agonizing death on the cross so that we could be rescued from sin and judgment, so that we could come into relationship with you again, that we could walk from this place forgiven and free, to be the people, to, to have the image restored in us, your image restored in us as the Spirit works in our lives. So as we come to communion this morning, we pray that you give us this fresh glimpse of this loving and awesome God and that you would rekindle our faith and strengthen our love. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to sing uh, of this uh, great uh, God. Number 395, 395, Judge Eternal, 395 in Mission Praise. <laughs>